Hey everyone, I'm Stephen Walsh, and this is my podcast. I'm a self-professed theology and history nerd, and this is where I get to talk about all the things I love and anything else that helps me think more Christianly. This podcast is a mix of sermons, teachings, and some conversations with friends. If anything you've heard has illuminated something from scripture, challenged you intellectually, or simply encouraged you or someone you know, please let me know. That being said, here's today's episode. Thanks for listening. We've been journeying through the letter of 1 Peter, also known as the epistle, and it really has some profound things to say to us as the church and believers, not only then, but now, today. Amen? And so, really quickly, we've already established this. We're in week number seven, but the, the epistle or the letter of Peter encourages or strengthens non-Jewish, which is us, right? Or if you're Jewish here, right? Christians who are suffering social harassment or minor mistreatment or even violent persecution by their non-Christian neighbors. And the letter of 1 Peter actually fosters in us, or it's meant to foster in us, a hope. Can you say hope? One more time, nice and loud. Hope. Good. Hope in the resurrection of Jesus, and it presents a roadmap for how we can transform, through the power of the Holy Spirit, our culture. Amen? Amen. So Peter writes this to the many different churches, giving wisdom and perspective, because he believes if Christians can change the paradigm of their life, of how they view suffering, how they view dying to themselves, then maybe... We can suffer well, and in the face of the culture, when the culture's looking at us, that might be a powerful witness to the world of the power and the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Amen? Why don't we pray together before we read the word? Father, we thank you that we get to gather together to open your perfect word, your wonderful word. We pray that it would speak life to people, that it would go forth, and that we would be good soil to receive your seed, your word. God, we pray that everything said today, that my personality, my voice would diminish, but you would increase. That we would take what we can from today and let it build into us a budding, beautiful tree that bears good fruit in all seasons. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. So if you're taking notes this morning, the talk is called Barriers to Truth. Barriers to truth. What actually does it mean that someone gets into this baptismal pool of water and they believe something to be true? I want to ask you a question. What makes Christianity true? I don't and I didn't ask what makes Christianity plausible or possible or even comforting. I'm not asking that. What makes Christianity true? Not just something you choose to make your life feel better, or even what you think is the right decision. What makes it true? What makes it true? The question is, what's the thing that makes any of this true and worth following? So if if you've ever taken a long look at the very base of your belief system, what you and I believe, 
And if you've asked yourself, what makes what I believe true? Then you know that that's an unbelievably deep question. Every single person who has stepped foot in this pool has decided in themselves that they believe Christianity not to just be a comfort, not to just be possible, but that it's true. Amen? Amen. Can you say that with me? It's true. So this revelation pulls every person up to the task of making a public demonstration, amen? So that means, right, this is not a private affair. Sometimes, by necessity, people will get baptized in a bathroom because maybe they're in a war-torn country who's against Christianity, of course. But if we are blessed with freedom, we make it a public declaration, amen? So how did they get there? How did you get to where you believed Christianity was true? How did any of us get to the place where we realized Christianity is literally true? In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller argues that every person encounters three barriers when they begin the journey of moving from an atheist to a Christian perspective. Three walls, three barriers that either keep you on one side or they actually are the crucible, so to speak, that moves you into faith, okay? Does that make sense? These barriers, they all come to you. They all will come to me. Every one of us cannot avoid it if we are endeavoring to become a Christian, right? Each one of these barriers will happen to us, but one barrier might be the primary one for you, but then the other two will follow suit. So these three barriers are the intellectual, the personal, and the social. The intellectual barrier, right, is this is when you and I ask ourselves the questions, what am I really doing here? Is Christianity actually literally true? And does any of it actually make sense to me? Is it not just a sermon I hear from Pastor Scott, but does it make sense to me? It's not just something given to me from another person, but you believe this makes sense, right? It's not just saying, well, this seems nice, but did any of it actually happen? This barrier flings tough questions to you and me. Right? If you're considering Christianity and you hit the intellectual barrier, you're starting to ask, well, what about other faiths? Right? Is Jesus who he says he is? Does God allow suffering and evil? How could a loving God judge people and punish people? Isn't the idea of hell just plain mean? Right? You start asking tough questions because you've hit the intellectual barrier. Make sense? Right? Why believe Jesus over anything else on offer today? So this is the barrier for many people in our country, right? It's a massive wall standing between non-faith and faith. This is where Christianity begins to answer the questions and provide sense to you and me, right? Because how many of you know the answers are there, amen? They make sense. But once the barrier is broken, that's when Christianity begins to unfurl its truth to people and the answers start to come. It's a gradual process. The second one, in order for Christianity to seem plausible and then become true, people need to be able to make sense of their faith. Not perfect sense, because God is infinite, but some sense that the Bible tells us, amen? There is truth in here, amen? The second one is the personal barrier. The second barrier, everyone faced before heading into this baptismal pool 
is the, is the moment where Christianity needs to make sense, not only in your head, but your heart. Your heart. It needs to make sense there. It needs to make sense personally because we are personal beings, right? Theodore Roosevelt said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? We put, like, the way people treat us at a higher importance than necessarily what they might say because you'll interpret what they say by how they made you feel, right? So it has to be a personal transformation. And many times, the personal barrier stands in our way. The person who's considering faith, they come to grip with a deeper sense of who God is. The personal barrier begins to fall when the person of the Holy Spirit interacts with them one night. Maybe they have a problem. Maybe you had a problem you couldn't fix. Maybe that was the moment where you were made aware of your fallenness, your sinfulness, your brokenness, and the moment you realized you need something beyond yourself to save you. It's not just you anymore. You can't be great. You can't do great. You can't make all the money in the world, find the great spouse, get the great job. There's a personal hole. There's a personal need. That's when the personal barrier begins to fall. I wonder if that was the main one for you. Amen? And you realize, maybe some of you, that the faith you had when you were a child is not the faith that will carry you into eternity. Maybe that personal moment is when, personally, you must choose God for yourself. Your mother can't. The patron saints don't. You have to choose it yourself as the personal barrier beginning to crumble. Is that making sense to everyone? This is the realization that Christianity really does answer the intellectual questions and the personal need of the heart, okay? So we must be ready to repent and turn ourselves around. Do we need forgiveness? The third barrier is the social barrier. Not only does Christianity need to make sense in your head and your heart, but in your crowd, in your family, in your social group. We're not meant to do life alone. Say amen if you believe that. We're meant to live in community. So at some point in time, in order for Christianity to seem not just plausible or possible, but true, you need to see, you need to see someone living the Christian life that pokes holes in everything you previously thought was true. It happened for my father and his roommate. Maybe it happened for you when you came to this church. It's a group. It's an individual. You need to see other people doing what the Bible says we should be doing. And when you see them doing it, you begin to see the social barrier begin to fall. You think to yourself, well, not only are they doing it, but I feel like I want to do it too. Does that make sense? You start to see these people living differently. The social barrier begins to fall. Christianity now, at that point, would make sense intellectually, personally, and socially. Tim Keller, as well as Christian psychologists, would say that is the three main barrier pillars that have to fall down for people to be able to enter into faith. And if you journey through the Bible, you see Jesus addressed all three. And for our purposes today, Peter addresses these three in our passage. These are not separate events. They happen one at a time. Each one might be the one for you, but then the other two follow. Making sense? When you see God's hand weaving you through the journey of not just 
coming along here like a herd mentality because your mom dragged you or your husband dragged you or your wife dragged you, but you start to see it personally change you, socially graft you into the body of Christ, and it makes sense so that you choose it, right? Now, obviously, there's a, an absolute majority of the time that Christianity is not meant to make sense, right? You're meant to take the leap of faith, of course, but you need to understand the faith you're leaping towards, amen? So that's what I mean by intellectual, right? So when you chose Jesus, which you could still choose Jesus today, and I hope that afterwards we do, and there's no one in the room left unsure, amen? It begins to make sense to us, and we feel that personal draw. So why mention any of this? Because in Peter's letter, 1 Peter chapter 3, we see that Peter is actually speaking to the community about these types of things. He's calling each and every one of us as Christians in the church to make sure that the community among them and watching them can see that Christians are willing to help other people break down these barriers. Christians are the light of the world with the salt of the earth. We don't only proclaim the gospel in word. Our actions actually help the people in our world to have these barriers begin to crumble. The Holy Spirit works through us, and we become the answer to people's prayers. Amen? God working through us, but we stepping out of our comfort zone, and you'll see how this works. If non-believers all experience these barriers, right? Every single one of us is asking questions. Where's our home, right? Who are the people we want to do life with? If people are asking that, then the way that the church prepares itself to answer that question, conducts itself to be able to be a personal witness, and then denies itself to be able to actually show people socially that this is the community you want to be a part of then that's actually an unbelievable guide to help people reach Jesus. If we do it, if we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us. So if we look at this passage of scripture and we see how Peter is speaking to us, then we too can see the roadmap he's putting forth to us. As we said in the second week, right? For the expectant hope to then subvert the culture, amen? So our testimony brings this personal truth to the claims of the gospel. It helps people through these barriers. So let's turn for the remainder of our time I have with you to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Why don't you open up with me? And please, for the sake of the word of God, take some notes, okay? This will not always stay with you after lunch today. <laughs> so take some notes. Meditate on this passage of scripture this week, Amen. Sermons and church is not a, a show, amen? It's a Bible study, and we want to meditate in it throughout the week, amen? So, Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8. He says, finally, can you say finally? finally. All of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because this is you who are called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil 
and their lips from deceitful speech. What is he doing? He's encouraging the community. He's beginning to form their character. He's calling out the things that have yet to be transformed by God and that have to be surrendered to him. It's not enough just to proclaim Jesus as Savior in your words, right? Then James says, if your faith lacks deeds, it's dead, right? You are instantly saved, but the Holy Spirit transforms you over time if you're obedient. You are saved instantly, but transformation does not come instantly. It's the greatest lie of the evangelical church sometimes. Transformation is a lifelong obedience in the same direction. Amen? Okay? So, straight off the bat, he's beginning to form us and come at us and confront us. If you're coming across this group of Christians who are sympathetic, loving people, they're not retaliatory, they're turning the other cheek, that would change everything for you. Right? Talk about a community that has been personally shaped and transformed by the gospel. Amen? If you actually saw that, Every barrier would begin to fall down in the personal realm, right? If you saw this, and if you were a non-believer, you'd be compelled to ask, what makes them act like that? What makes them behave like this, right? Peter continues, he says, you, say you. They, he says they, the believers, that's us. We, they, must turn from evil and do good. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to our prayer. So he's saying, if you are sympathetic, loving, compassionate, not because of you have to do it, but because Christ has saved you and brought you up, adopted you into the family of God, and now you have no choice but to act like Jesus. And if this happens, then what follows is a turning from evil, what we call repentance, okay? The type of community that will turn from evil, that type of community shows the world that Christianity is true. I love this, okay? It's a community marked by repentance. This is key, okay? The reason why the church would have no problem attracting new converts is not totally because they are loving, It's not totally because they are selfless. That is a huge witness. This is the ultimate reason why personally people will look at you and see something different. The fruit is wonderful. It will draw people. But how many of you know there are inviting social groups at your office? There are nice people in the world. That's called common grace. People can be kind in the world. They don't have to believe in Jesus to be kind because they've been made by our creator who is kind and loving. But we have the propensity to do evil and sin. Thus, the one thing that will change the personal barrier is seeing a community that is repentant, that knows they are fallen, they're dead, and now they've been raised to life. Does that make sense? And then the fruit of that will be loving kindness, sympathetic love, right? Non-retaliatory action. But you see, Peter gets to the linchpin, turn from evil, Turn from evil. As long as we do not turn from evil, the good we do might get muddled in there, right? Because repentance changes you. It marks you. Repentance fuels you to actually love others selflessly because you have been loved first selflessly. Do you understand? You will run out of fuel trying to love other people if you have never once bowed to the feet of Jesus. 
because that gives you the ultimate fuel to love selflessly. Amen. I don't know about you, but I remember when I had my moment. In front of 35 people, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. Are you ready to turn away from evil, Stephen? I was living completely hypocritical. I was a worship leader, sleeping around, drunken, smoking, completely double life, right? This, remember, this means nothing. This to this means, means nothing. It's all about the character of the person, right? There is no man of God. There's no man, woman of God aura that can separate you from the need to repent, amen? Wow, talk about it. And he humbled me in front of 35 people I didn't know, and I had to tell them, amen? I told them I repented. This is not a glorify me moment. This is a you can do this too moment. There comes a moment when repentance becomes the signifier for people's barriers around you. A couple people in that room, when I repented and chose Jesus and revealed my hypocrisy, they actually were convicted as well. Thus, the repentance proliferates out and it spreads like a beautiful aroma, pleasing before the Lord. Amen? So if I were to take that leap, I knew Christ would catch me, but so would the community. See, they work together, social, personal, and intellectual, right? I know Christianity is true because it confronted me personally, and it still is changing me personally. Can you say that? Can you say that about your life, that Christianity is true because it's changing you personally? You are different than you were, amen? If only people out in the world caught a glimpse of a community like this that was built on repentance. Peter continues. He says, if you turn from evil and if you do good, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Can you say blessed? Do not fear their threats, right? People are going to come against you, Life Church. Your boss, your family, they're going to do it in a minor way or a major way. Do not fear their threats, amen? amen. Do not be frightened. Do not, the fear, do not let the fear of man cripple you. Rather, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord and tremble. Be prepared, he says. Every one of us in your hearts, Revere, revere Christ as Lord and have something ready to say. When someone comes against you in persecution, do not rely on a sermon to give you what you have to say. Get it for yourself from the word and the word alone. Everything you hear in a dream, everything you get prophecy-wise, everything you watch on YouTube, it is out of authority if it is not rooted and established and submitted to the word. That is what we've been teaching for 2,000 years. This is the litmus of God's truth in the world. Amen? Amen. Amen. He says, who's going to harm you if you do good? See, your reputation carries. It carries. And the repentance, the aroma actually fills the room that you're in. But even if people come against you, do not fear them. Because when they do that, you are then tasked to give an intellectual answer. See? You begin to change the world when your personal transformation begins to be shown to people so that that barrier falls in their life. But then sometimes they will ask you, what is this hope you profess? And the intellectual answer needs to be ready, Life Church. We need to be ready and able. Trust me, there is nothing sadder than a Christian who is questioned, who does not know what to say, okay? And that's not an indictment on being able to know all of theology. No, far from that. You just need to know the gospel. 
You just need to know the gospel. Amen? Okay? Peter understands that when what is in you personally starts to affect you intellectually, right? You start to have the need to be able to know what to say. You start to think about the experiences you've had, and then you're asking the intellectual questions. There's nothing I love more than talking to people. And many of you know, our uh, kingdom and remnant leaders will, will know me as a very heady person. I'm very thoughtful. Like In that sense, sometimes I get myself into a little bit of a mental you know, mix-up sometimes, right? Overthinking things. But I love to talk with people. I love to gather every bit of information, and then I love to offer a moment, a question. I love to pose a question. That's what Jesus did as a rabbi. He posed questions to people, which the truth would lead to him, right? So I believe, though, even if you're an intellectual person, what you say is only as far, it's only going to go as far as who you are. What do I mean by that? If you have something to say, like Peter says, A claim to the truth that you say, right, it crumbles if actually it's spoken from the mouth of someone who lacks credibility. So see how these begin to build. The personal witness of your action and then repentance that actually forms the the, the sight that you are fallen and full of shame and then you give it to God and you're broken but he's transformed you and then when you have something to say, that brokenness shines through, not a lack of credibility. That actually carries through that when we are Christians, when we say something, prepare yourself for introspection to come back on you. Prepare yourself for someone who hears what you have to say to then put the microscope on your life. Prepare yourself. If you say, I believe this to be true and Jesus is the way, and you know what? Sin is wrong and you need to come to the cross. Well, get ready for your boss or your wife or your child to look at you after that conversation and see, do they believe it? Do they believe it? Or do they just say it? Because Proverbs says this, people with integrity, they walk safely. You will walk safely if you walk with integrity. But those who follow duplicity, double-mindedness, I say one thing and I act another, that crooked path will be exposed. I have been exposed so many times in my life where I said what my parents told me to say, but I didn't believe it. And then in front of people, I looked the fool. And not only that, that's the, that's the tip of the iceberg. I made Christ laughable to them. I dishonored Christ. And that should weigh on us. I dishonored the name of Christ. Do you know that God deserves to have you know what to say? God is worthy of you knowing what to say. It's not an option to know what to say, church. He actually is worthy of you knowing what you believe, right? If someone asks you, it's not enough just to come up to Priscilla, Scott, Stephen, or maybe your connect group leader and go, hey, what's this? Asking for help, of course, ask for help, ask for guidance. But if you only rely on man, you will never have the solidity and the foundation on God. Amen? Amen. And then it won't translate to people. It won't translate and, and, and bear good fruit. They'll see through it, right? This means nothing. What we say means nothing if the life behind it raises an eyebrow, right? That's why Peter, two weeks ago, we saw that he said, live such good lives. He didn't say, speak such good truth. 
He said, live such good lives. Though that people accuse you of doing wrong, then they're shamed because it's so obvious that you live what you preach, right? It's obvious. If someone said, you know what? This Christian over here that goes to Life Church, they don't know what they're talking about. And then someone watching them says, uh, I know that person. You're wrong, right? How good would it be to have a counter witness to your credibility? How beautiful would it be to have that second voice to be able to say, uh, have you seen their life? Christianity sounds a little wild, yeah, I'm sure, but have you seen their life? It's different. It's changed. Amen? Isn't it interesting that he doesn't begin with the fact that you have to say the right thing, then act the right way? See, acting the right way doesn't save you. Repentance saves you. But then when it comes to your action in the world, right, you have to act the right way in order to in order to be able to witness. Sometimes you can't always say the right thing at the moment. Sometimes your words can't cover the ground that your life can. Sometimes you'll never get a word to say to that one relative who will never hear you out. Sometimes you have to labor and labor and labor, sowing seed after seed after seed, receiving scorn upon scorn, words, all these things coming at you, harsh, mean, wicked things come your way, but your life will still look like Christ and it will break down the barrier. Amen? Amen? Because Peter understands in the word here that in order to win people, your actions must come before your words. Your actions undergird your words because people look through. They look through your words into your life to determine whether or not what you're saying is true. How is Christianity true? Every person who was baptized here, can I get your attention, please? People are going to ask you now. This is beautiful. This is the moment you should remember forever with your salvation. But be ready, my friends. Be ready and make it a joyful effort to know what to say. Amen? Amen. It's not a test in that type of sense where if you fail, you are a failure. Take it as a moment where, God, you're so worthy. You're so worthy. The truth of the gospel is so worthy. I will know what to say. And you'll give me strength even if I'm afraid. Amen? Amen? Once your actions have been observed, your testimony is heard. And then your words eventually matter. What will you say? N.T. Wright says this, Christians need to be ready to offer a public defense for the hope they possess. Yet, as always, he says, the medium is the message. So he's saying your life is the message. Your life is the words, right? That means your defense of the Christian faith has to be made with gentleness, respect, clear conscience. What does that mean? Peter will go on to say, you need a clear conscience. You need to know the life you're living matches up with the truth you preach. It's the worst feeling in the world. I felt it when I said something and I knew my conscience It's not clear. I walked away feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But how many of you know God is still good? And he'll do it despite your fallenness. Because we cannot ever be perfect. God alone is perfect. Jesus says God is good. Amen? So, the intellectual barrier actually begins to fall in your life with other people when you have something to say, even small. What's your testimony? How has the gospel impacted you? Those little seeds begin to sow into people's lives and the intellectual barrier begins to fall. Are you with me? It begins to fall and people, they won't just take another person's word for it. They're gonna start with your word and then go to the word, amen? 
So imagine if people came across our community and we responded to what Peter had to say. We listened to what the apostle had to say so that we investigate the word of God. We have something to say and we have our personal experience to back it up. Amen? Not only in words, but with deeds. If the band could come up, I'm going to do one last point. Peter takes a very sharp turn here, a very sharp turn. Not only does he address the personal, the personal barriers that we might be able to break down, that breaks down in us, and then we become a Christian, but the personal and intellectual barriers that others might view our life and see the truth of God, and their walls fall down as well. But Peter takes a sharp turn here. He addresses the topic of suffering for Christ. Suffering. There's a movie called A Hidden Life that came out around five years ago. I could not recommend this movie high enough for any of you. It's not for children, but it is one of the most impactful films I think I've ever seen. It has radically reshaped so many things. Please watch this movie after this week. Amen? Amen. Please. Uh, That's your homework. That's pretty fun. This movie details the story of an Austrian farmer named Franz Jägerstatter. He had a wonderful little family, and he had a wonderful farm, and everything was fantastic until eventually Nazi Germany invaded Austria, and one one by one, the Nazi SS officers called upon the townspeople to swear allegiance to Adolf Hitler. Being a devout Christian, Franz denied them. Over and over and over again, the film depicts his life again and again and again, from softly gaining higher and higher modes of manipulation. The Nazis and the townspeople press on him. They press on him. They break him down. They offer him wealth. They offer him a pension. They even give him the opportunity to be the mayor of the town. They say, you don't have to be a farmer. You can have all of these things. It reminds me of the way the enemy tempted Jesus in the wilderness. You can have everything you want. Just bow down to me. Bow down to me. Worship me alone. And you see in the film, it's unbelievable. The silent, the beautiful, the hiddenness, the humility of his denial of that force. They offered him everything, and he said, everything is not enough. Christ is what I want. All throughout the film, you hear in German, Psalm 23, and Bible passages being uttered and prayed. He he would not break his allegiance to Jesus Christ and swear to follow Adolf Hitler and the wickedness of the regime. All the townspeople are having their hearts turned towards the other races. The things they say is disgusting. And you can see how the social, they begin to be formed in the way of Satan. The, the social barrier you're, you're seeing in the film, you see how in the world it operates this way like a torrent. And you see how people begin to see other people as expendable as worthy to die, as worthy to be sacrificed. And you see this one family, this one family stand in the face of absolute sick wickedness. Though the people around him 
say all these things. You've betrayed your country. You've betrayed your morals. He stands strong. His wife even totters for a little bit, but she trusts. The priests themselves are bought and paid for by the Nazi party. They're saying, Romans 13, Paul says, submit to the governing authorities. They use the word against him. But he stays strong. If only he will swear allegiance, everything will go away. All the pain will subside. But he resists. And he was executed on August 9th, 1943. And the title of the film is taken from two quotes, one from the author and one from the Bible. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, small acts, small things that don't make the paper, don't make the websites. And the reason why things are not so bad as they might have been is half owing to those who lived a faithful and hidden life. You didn't know Franz existed before today. He was hidden in the annals of history. But yet, we still speak about him. We still speak about the martyrs who died for Christ. Those who proclaim the gospel and the truth must be ready to suffer. And this is a hard message for all of us. To love the world is to deny Christ. But to deny the world is to gain Christ. Paul says, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. There is nothing, my friends, nothing. When I read the transcripts of the early martyrs, other than the Bible, there's nothing that I find more beautiful than the testimony of the people who are lit on fire for God, literally, and died. There is nothing like it. No moment at the altar where you have a good feeling, no sermon you hear at a church, nothing at all matters in the light of that moment where the test comes and you say yes. That's a big ask, I know. I don't even think I understand it at all. I think few of us do, but we pray that when the test comes, we will not swear allegiance to the devil, but to God. Amen? Can we stand? For it is better, if it's God's will that you suffer for doing good than for evil, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And he was put to death in the body, but made alive to the Spirit. You see, the greatest testament to the faith of Jesus was to suffer and to die with him. That's why this is so important. Because baptism is a symbol of your dying to the body. You're dying to your old life. You're dying to the self. And that God raises you up like he raised up Jesus on the third day. Baptism is for repentance and for joining into the community of faith that know that they are dead in their sin, but alive to Christ. That's the power of this beautiful symbol and what it speaks to the world. 
that water symbolizes baptism. It's not small, but it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the power, he says. When you go under the water and when your life is suffering, when you have been earnest before God to help the barriers trickle down for other people in your life, to help them unlock the truth of the gospel for their head, to know that the personal choice to be in the gospel works for their heart, and then to help them see that there's a community around us that can break the social barriers, that can help them come into the family, the the body of Christ, then we actually begin to see that the church becomes the answer. Amen? The church becomes the answer. Peter knows, and we know, that the church, the salvation gospel of Jesus, has within itself to be a a witness to the world. Personally, intellectually, and then socially, we have all that we need through the power of the Holy Spirit to create a revival across this nation. We have all that we need. But before we finish, in the final You've been listening to the Stephen Walsh Teaching Podcast. This podcast is new, so consider subscribing and giving us a follow over on social media. Thanks again for listening, and I hope today has helped you encounter Jesus and counter the culture.